We're on session four of a five-week series, uh, Christian Perspective on Marriage, Family, and Singleness. We spent the first three weeks looking uh, primarily at things related to marriage and then said that we were going to start to, uh, last week we started to make some of the transition over to the family portion of the discussion when we were talking about uh, the role of um, sexual love and intimacy and how that factors into um, our understanding of the design that God has worked into the creation order. Thank you. How Andy got water on this, I don't know. This is typical of our relationship. I'm always having to clean up his messes. So, um, Yes, marriage, family, and singleness. So we're going to uh, spend tonight looking at a Christian perspective on family, and then next week, a Christian perspective on singleness. Let me go ahead and give you a, a heads up on, um, on what we're doing tonight. Um, we, a little while ago, we had a, a series that we did on, um, on child rearing, uh, teaching and talking along the way. I think we've got that audio up on the website. That was more, dealt more with some of the uh, sort of the day-to-day um, details involved in trying to disciple your kids at home, uh, what Christian parenting looks like in, in certain aspects. That's not what we're going to do here tonight. This is much more of a, just kind of a, uh, kind of a stepping back and taking just a, a broad look at the concept of the family. Like, how should Christians think about family? So we hear, for example, uh, when election cycles come around, um, it's not uncommon to hear people talk about family values or to talk about community and so on and so forth. Um, All of that's fine and good, depending on what your concept of family values are, how you define family. Um, Even those basic things are starting to shift to a certain degree. So this is more or less just kind of a a view from a distance or a flight over the terrain, so to speak, to say, here's what Scripture seems to say about this... uh, this entity or this institution that we call family and how it shapes the way that we think as Christians stepping into that that discussion and into some of the issues that inevitably uh, come from it. So uh, just briefly, um, to bring us up to speed on where we are, we started with week one, talking about the fact that marriage was instituted within the context, there we go, Marriage is instituted by the Creator in the context of meaningful work. And in Genesis 1 and 2, especially when you look at Genesis 2, God has placed the man in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. When God says it's not good for the man to be alone, it's within the context of it not being good for him to be alone in the task that he's been given. And so one of the things that's easily overlooked and diminished is the fact that God uniquely brings man and woman together in the institution of marriage so that, or for the purpose of, causing them to work together as a team to do meaningful things in his creation. One of the meaningful things is building a family, 
other meaningful things have to do with what we do in the workplace outside of the home, uh, sharing the gospel, being kind to our neighbors. All of these things ultimately is a, is a teamwork process, but marriage is not given primarily just for the warm and fuzzies and so that we can feel nice about ourselves or our soulmate, however you understand that. Uh, but God brings us together for uh, a purpose and to be productive in his creation as his image bearers and as his servants. Uh, the second thing we looked at, I think this is from week two, marital love is a gift that infuses our work with joy and delight and promotes solidarity. We tried to make sure in week two that we didn't run too far after the first week and given the idea that, uh, that marriage is little more than a, a functional institution or that, it, um, that we were trying to present it as having just sort of a utilitarian goal or goals in mind, that there is something to say for the fact that good marriages do have that, um, that loving, caring, affectionate part to it. And you see that even in the creation account in Genesis 2, uh, Adam's, uh, what appears to be his natural, um, reflexive response when he sees Eve. Ah, this is it, right? This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I'll call her woman, for she was taken out of man. The two, uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. There's uh, a drawing of the way that God creates man and woman. They are the same, but there's a distinctive otherness between the sexes, between man and woman, that in some way seems to account for this innate attraction that exists between male and female, um, a desire for them to come back together, and that's expressed in a variety of ways. All that being said, the way that point one and point two work together is that they, uh, they complement one another. No marriage is meant to be only about work, getting things done, as if you have a business partnership. And no marriage is meant to be only about love, as where you essentially turn in on yourself and you shut the rest of the outside world out. Both of those two things work together. It's in the, the effective partnering of husband and wife in a loving relationship that they make a mark uh, and fulfill the call that God has placed on them as a couple. And then third, sex is a blessing for marriage and for procreation. We talked about the fact that um, in terms of sexual intimacy, there was a relational good and a procreative good or a procreational good. Relational good in that there are benefits that come to the husband and wife in a rightly ordered sexual relationship. That God has designed this sexual union to exist only between a husband and wife in a committed relationship. But having said that, um, there are good things that come of it. One, uh, the enjoyment, the, the pleasure of sex, the expression of, um, of the love that's shared, um, a consummation of the desire. So looking at Song of Solomon, we talked about how often in that book, um, more, more than what we typically think is, are the, is the couple, the, the man and the woman, expressing their longing for the partner or to come together with. And so it's inviting you to see this love that draws them together, but a love that desires to be expressed in some sort of tangible way. And that's one of the things that God does when he gives us sex is that he gives a tangible way, a physical way to express immaterial desires or inclinations and emotions, so on and so forth. We talked about the fact that it has a bonding effect. 
um, that there is, um, it solidifies the relationship between husband and wife. One, by nature of the fact that the sexual relationship is something that is intended to be unique for husband and wife, I can do lots of other things with other women. For example, carry on a conversation, share a meal, um, share a hobby, anything like that. There's only one woman that I can share sex with, and that's, that's my wife. So in a unique way, Although there are other things that we do and that I would do with my wife that would cause us to be bonded together, there's a unique way that sexual intimacy does that in ways that few other things can. Um, We talked about the fact that sex is also a, uh, a form of rest and renewal for the couple. In the same way that God gives us six days to work and then one day of rest, contrary to pop culture, which basically says marriage is all about the thrills, the amorous affections, and the sexual fulfillment, it's probably better to see it the other way around, that as a couple comes together and as they serve their creator in his kingdom, sex is uniquely given to them as one of the ways to give them a break from the mundane details of life so that they can just enjoy one another again. In the same way that a Sabbath was meant for the people to take a break from work so that they can enjoy communing with God, getting themselves reoriented, and then set back out for another productive week of work, something along those lines probably is also going on with the sexual relationship between husband and wife. And then obviously the, the, uh, the procreative good, it's in the act of making love is in our vernacular today, in lovemaking that we actually create new life. And one of the things that we said, I think we said it the last time that we were together, would have been two weeks ago now, the last time that we were together, is that uh, even this is by design, we inductively reason, in the sense that it follows certain patterns or it sets up certain safeguards. So, uh, in the same way that God created this world and created us, not out of a sense of, uh, of duty or a lack as if he were lonely by himself, he didn't have any purpose or meaning, oh, I know what I'll do, I'll create people and then my life will have a purpose. Rather, he is perfectly and eternally happy in the Trinitarian fellowship that exists, time past into time future, and out of an overflow and outworking of that shared mutual love and enjoyment, he creates out of joy and delight. In the same way, at its best, couples do not procreate in order to give themselves some sort of purpose or meaning in life. Rather, the better perspective or the better paradigm is that they create life as they're sharing love together. And their children then become additional ways for them to share love, husband and wife, right? As they're sharing in the activity of raising their children. And then it also gives them other unique image bearers that they're now bringing into this loving environment for them to share and to benefit in the love and joy and happiness that exists, much the way that God invites us to share in his love and joy and happiness by communing with him. Um, We also mentioned the fact that in uh, the sexual relationship, the fact that sex both precedes and continues beyond childbearing is one of the ways that we're reminded of the fact that the end goal of marriage, the end goal of even um, intimacy between husband and wife is not producing or creating children. One of the things that has to be kept in the forefront of our minds is that even when children start to come, 
the greater love that exists in the household is the love that exists between husband and wife, not parent to child. And in fact, you do your, uh, your children a far greater service in demonstrating the fact that there is a rock-solid, secure love between mom and dad that they then benefit from in the overflow of that rather than turning all of your love and attention on the children to force them to carry a weight and a burden that they were never designed to carry, okay? All that being said then, let's come to, the, uh, to family itself. Family in the Old Testament. I wanna look at two sides of the coin in the way that family is presented in the Old Testament and then look at how family is presented in the New Testament. And then I think from there, we've got some uh, summary, summary thoughts where we'll try to tie some of these loose strands together into some sort of cohesive thought. Number one, uh, and this is sort of uh, in an all-inclusive way, because family is grounded in the created order, family is good. Now, to be fair, this is the Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, having dominion over the earth. To be fair, it needs to be said that family is not there at the beginning or is not instituted at the beginning of creation, but the, the creation mandate, as it were, be fruitful and multiply, clearly demonstrates that, the, um, that all the necessary components for family are there at the beginning of creation. So apart from sin and the fall and disobedience, the normal good blessing of family was there in the mind of God from the very beginning. Family is not something, in other words, that comes as a result of the fall. Oh my gosh, Adam and Eve have blown it. Well, maybe if we just have them procreate and produce a bunch of other little image bearers, we'll have better success with their offspring than we did with them. That's not the way it works at all. So that being said, family in and of itself from the very beginning is seen to be something that is good. Here are some of the ways that it's presented in the Old Testament then. One, if you wanna go to Psalm 127, go ahead and turn there because we're gonna look at Psalm 128 as well. And since they're so close, we might as well go ahead and turn. One of the ways that the good of the family is borne out as being a permanent part of the creation order is that children categorically are said to be a good thing. So in Psalm 127, verse three, the psalmist attributed to Solomon says, behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man, or how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. No ifs, ands, or buts, no, no you know, exception clauses or anything, just as a general statement. Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a womb that produces children, is a reward. At the very least, one of the things that Christians need to be able to say across the board is that any time conception takes place, any time the prospect of children are in view, that's a good thing. Now, how children come to be, for example, outside of 
marital unions, in abusive contexts or anything like that. Of course, there, there are other things that we can say about that. But Christians should be the last people on the face of the earth who ever wring their hands or whoever fret and worry about the fact that someone has just announced that they're pregnant because, oh my gosh, we, how are they going to pay for, you know, pay for raising their kids? Do you know how expensive college is these days and all the other nonsense that goes with it? Scripture would have us understand that any time that the Lord, any time the Lord gives a child, that that is a good thing. And for us to call that into question or to doubt it is to call into question God's evaluation of the situation and God's judgment in terms of the giving of life as he chooses. Closely related to that, Psalm 128. Fruitfulness is a mark of blessing. This is closely related to Psalm 127, but it's, a, it's also a little bit a shade different. In Psalm 128, verses 3 and 6, or actually, let me start at verse 2. Um, when you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Verse three, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. My father likes to say they're like olive plants because olives are messy. I don't think that's the point that, that the psalmist is making. I think the olive plant was valuable to the agrarian society of Old Testament Israel, and so to have a thriving olive orchard was something that was going to, going to benefit you ultimately long term. So seeing these children scattered around the table or scattered around the house, you're not to see a bunch of leeches, right, or a bunch of you know, money-sucking uh, crumb crunchers, but you're to see value and worth and something ultimately that's going to be a great benefit and a treasure to you in the future. With that, uh, verse six, indeed, may you see your children's children, peace be upon Israel. Being fruitful, having children, plural, is a sign of fruitful labor, now, one of the things that needs to be said here is fruitful labor within, especially within the Old Testament paradigm, is the idea that you actually see some sort of return on your work. Everything that you did was meant to be fruitful in some way, right? So when Jesus talks about, you know, abide in me so that you bear much fruit, right? You, you abide, you dwell in him and the natural outworking of that is that there is fruit born from that relationship. Here, the perspective in 128 seems to be that absent children in a marriage, there is question as to whether or not you're actually experiencing the fullness of God's blessing. Now, we'll come back. We'll say something about that because something needs to be said about struggles in childlessness and uh, the inability to conceive and all of the other things that, you know, that break this down. But the perspective here is, is that the natural expected outcome of marriage is children. It would have been inordinate, unusual, unnatural for a marriage not to produce children because marriage, the fruit of marriage is children. Do you, you follow what we're saying? 
The additional blessing, as it says at the end of that psalm, is not just to have children, but for your children to have children. To have grandchildren is blessing on top of blessing. So, point number three then. Alternatively, childlessness is either a curse, as in Deuteronomy 28, or it's a grief. We could point to more places than one, but if you think of um, Samuel's mother, I'm drawing a blank on her name, Hannah, okay? If you think of um, Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, um, not having any children, it's a grief, it's a sorrow to her. Uh, every year that they go to the tabernacle, she weeps and she prays for the Lord to, um, to give her a child. And when he does, she sings this beautiful uh, hymn or poem that's recorded there about how her fortunes have been turned upside down. Uh, you know, the, the low have been made high and the weak have been made strong. So within the Old Testament perspective, the fact that you would not have fruitful marriages was either a sign of God's displeasure or within just the normal struggles of life and the, the breakdown of creation because of sin, it was something to be grieved, not something to be you know, apathetic about. That doesn't mean, understand, we're not equating the two as if to say because Hannah, for example, did not have children it was because God had cursed her. That's, that's not the point. It's just to say that those are the two ways that it was viewed in the Old Testament. Either we're not seeing fruit from this marriage because God's heavy hand is disciplining us or something dreadful has happened, something sorrowful is happening here and it's reason for us to grieve, not to become fat and happy and just say, oh good, we don't get, have to be tied down or hindered with kids. It's not the way that it works. All that being said, on the one hand, family in the Old Testament is a categorical good. It's just stated as a blessing outright. But the Old Testament is also honest enough to display the qualified good that comes with family because of the entrance of sin and rebellion and the marring of creation that comes about as a result. So family, like everything else in the created order, is marred and warped by sin. Just because children are a blessing, children are a gift, does not mean that there won't be trouble or toil or heartache that come with children. Or, in a larger view, that there isn't burden and pressure that comes with a family unit as it grows or as it remains. That's part of it. In the same way that marriage is given as a good thing, when sin comes into the world, what was meant to be that loving, joyful partnership now is marred by mistrust, heavy-handedness, undermining, and there's a, a sense in which even in Christian marriages, there's a need to redeem the marriage in order for it to be prosperous and productive and fruitful in the same way this goes with family as well. So just a, a couple of examples. In some cases, family is shown to be a source of conflict. Genesis 27, we're not going to read the whole thing. 
classic example. By the way, a lot there are a, surpri- a surprising number of dysfunctional families in Scripture. Just probably because there are a surprising number of sinners in Scripture. But just a hunch, just a guess. But if you have your Bible with you, and if you turn to, to Genesis 27, what, what is that passage or what is that storyline? Okay, Isaac blessing Jacob. Isaac is the father, Rebecca is the mom, and then you've got the twins, Esau and Jacob. They're older now. Isaac is getting near death. It's time for him to pronounce the blessing. And in, uh, in 27... Uh, and actually, I think a little bit earlier, actually, in uh, it may be actually as early as chapter 25. Yeah, uh, go back just a little bit to Genesis chapter 25 at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man or maybe a complete man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau. Why? Yeah, because he liked the food that Esau made. He was a good hunter. He went out. He got some good meat. He apparently prepared it pretty well. And so because of that, Jacob said, well, I love Esau more than I love Jacob. That's pretty petty, right? Right? I mean, it's not that Esau is a man of, you know, character, integrity. It's not that he's showing more promise, you know, in terms of making his mark in the world. It's not that Isaac necessarily expects that, you know, Esau is going to be a great family man or anything like that. He liked what Esau gave him for food. And so he, he said, yeah, because he, because he fills my belly, that's my boy. And then Rebecca is really no better off. She has her favorite. And wouldn't you know it, it just happens to be the other kid, Jacob. And so when you come to chapter 27 then, you see all of this sibling rivalry and parental favoritism rearing its ugly head. Esau wants to, wants to get the blessing that he supposedly sold off to his brother. He goes out to get it. Rebecca hears about it. She's plotting against her husband and against her son Esau conspiring together with Jacob. And as a result of that then, Jacob, quote-unquote, steals the blessing, sort of not really, takes the blessing that Isaac was supposed to give him anyway, increases the conflict in the family. Jacob has to leave, flee. He'll never see his parents again. He'll, they'll die while he's in exile. And he lives in fear of his brother for most of the rest of his adult life. That doesn't sound like much of a blessing. Another example. Family at times was the cause or a cause of a curse. 1 Samuel 3, verses 11 through 14. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, and that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. 
For I have told him that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That's harsh. Eli, with the exception of apparently some dysfunctional parenting or weak parenting, Eli seems to be an upright man and seems to be serious about his role as a priest for Israel. He doesn't have a handle on his sons who also serve as priests at the tabernacle. And so as a result, Eli's family is judged. By the way, let me just kind of throw in here that, you know, a lot of times if you're not careful, you, you kind of zoom in so much on the, on the one feature in the passage that you lose sight of sort of the broader picture. First Samuel is a, is a great way to show that God is not limited to any particular family structure or framework to accomplish good things. So you've got Eli who's serving as a priest The sons who have lived with Eli, presumably for all their lives, are these worthless, immoral men. They steal from the the meat that's brought for sacrifices and offerings. They sleep with women who come to visit the tabernacle. Sexual immorality, stealing from the Lord's offerings, all those things. Eli cannot bring them under control. As a result, judgment comes. But But you have to remember that all of this is preceded by Hannah's great longing desire to have a son, to have a child. And when she does, she says preemptively, if you give me a son, I'll give him back over to you. And the way that that takes shape is that she takes Samuel, after he's been weaned, to the tabernacle to live with Eli in the midst of this cesspool. And yet, for as rotten as what Eli's sons are, Samuel turns out, with glowing character. He's a man of integrity. But then guess what happens? When, Samuel's time, when Samuel is about ready to retire or is about to pass from the scene, do you know what's happened with his family? His sons are not imitating their father. They're not walking in the ways of the Lord. So whatever setbacks or whatever negatives or the deck being stacked against you in and of itself is not one of the ways to determine whether or not good things are going to happen here. All that being said, for all the blessing and the good that family is, because of the fact that sin has infected us and breaks our wills, breaks our desires, gives us an inordinate um, ordering of things, family oftentimes is not the unhindered blessing that it should be. And then number three, we could say other things, but family is viewed as a potential, um, not as a potential compromise itself, but the means by which compromise could seep in. And by and compromise, we mean um, compromise in one's relationship with the Lord. So just for the sake of time, we won't turn there right now, but if you were to look at Deuteronomy 13, the statement there is about what happens if you find out that someone has 
turned from the Lord and is going after strange gods. And it's very clear and direct. If it turns out that your brother or son or daughter, or, and it gives all these family connections, that they've done this, you are to show them no pity. But you're to judge, you're to purge the sin out of Israel so that greater harm doesn't come. I think part of the warning there is the recognition that there are oftentimes temptations to sacrifice or to compromise on clearly stated standards because of the emotional attachment or the affection that we have for our family. By the way, this, I, th- I think, not always, I, I don't want to be, um, I don't want to paint with too, too broad a brush here, but I think this is one of the reasons why some parents um, can run into so much trouble with their children because they, they subtly they begin to put so much focus or so much attention on making their children happy that it becomes very difficult for them to see their children unhappy. And so the greatest good for them as a parent is to make their kids happy, which means it becomes harder and harder for them to say hard things to their children, right? To actually tell them no or to tell them acting like a fool right now, son. What in the world are you doing? Right, to call them on the carpet and to risk short-term and we might even say even long-term frustration and harm because we're not willing to follow the clear instructions or patterns of Scripture and not willing to forsake husband, wife, son, daughter for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. This was a problem not just for Old Testament Israel, but it's a perennial problem for anyone who's been called to walk in the footsteps of Christ to recognize that there is always a danger that some of the affections that we have in the world, right affections, good affections, can also undermine the greater affection that we're supposed to have for the Lord, such that not only do we harm ourselves, but we also harm the very ones that we're trying to love. Okay. Family in the New Testament. This is going to be much briefer. Assumed and affirmed relative to discipleship. By that we mean this. One of the interesting things in the, in the New Testament is that there, is, there does not seem to be the clear directives related to family life in the New Testament that you have in the Old Testament. There's one place, the only place that I, that I could find or that I could at least remember, and y'all correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, this is big vulnerability here because you could call me on the carpet and say, you missed this and now I look like a moron. But the only, the only place that I could find where anything like sort of the Old Testament emphasis on bearing children come, uh, comes into view is when Paul is talking about uh, widows, I think it's in 1 Timothy, And he talks about the fact that young widows, he wants them to marry and to bear children. He says very specifically. But outside of that, every other mention of children or family just seems to be a given. Like it's just assumed that they're there. That's what we mean by assumed and affirmed. There's not, in other words, in Israel, it it was a mandate for them to have children because 
the kingdom of God in the Old Testament was one that was directly connected to a physical line for God's kingdom, for God's people to continue to exist and grow, you had to have biological children. As a result of Christ coming, now God's kingdom and God's people are not built by ethnic and tribal and physical descent. It's built by spiritual birth, so you don't see the same emphasis on physical childbearing as you do on spiritual childbearing. Doesn't diminish the place of the family, but it just takes a different, um, a different view, or perhaps a little bit of a takes a little bit of the focus off of the family. For example, Jesus' words and actions affirm the goodness of family. In Matthew seven nine through eleven, after Jesus gives the the command about um, you know knocking, it will be opened. Seeking, you'll find. Asking, it will be given to you. I may have gotten that order out of uh, wrong. He gives the example of, you know, which one of you, if your son asks you for a piece of bread, will his father give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? So Jesus assumes that there is a natural loving relationship between father and son that's marked by nurture and provision. Um, You've got other such examples of Jesus healing individuals. Someone comes and says, my daughter is sick and is about to die or my daughter has died, would you please heal her? Jesus doesn't say, oh, forget about it. We got more important things than family squabbles or family issues right now. I'm here about the kingdom. No, he takes time to minister to grieving parents or parents who are worried about the loss of their child. Second, family retains a prominent place in Christian teaching. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. No instruction about men make sure that you father 2.5 children or some other such number. Just assume that if you have a father or that if you have a husband and wife, you're going to have a father and a mother. So Paul gives instructions about how fathers are supposed to relate to their children and vice versa. 1 Timothy 3 is an interesting place where, um, and we're probably familiar with this in some respects, when we talk about the qualifications for an elder one of, the, one of the qualifications that Paul gives for an elder is that he has to be someone who manages his own household well. For, if he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he manage the household of God? Right? Assumed, again, that someone with a modicum of maturity in a local church setting is going to be an individual who is married and has a family and who is able to point to his family or who the church is able to look at, his, his family environment, his household, to say, based on the way that this man loves, leads, protects, provides for his family, it seems like he's got marks of good godly leadership. We'll come back to that in a minute. The family actually seems to be something of a type for the church itself. Jesus and Paul make clear that discipleship or that the kingdom 
is more important than family. Here is, we said that in the New Testament, family is assumed and affirmed. Here's the second part of that, relative to discipleship. So let's, let's actually turn to a couple of these. Uh, two passages out of Matthew. Matthew 8, 21 and 22, and then Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 8, 21 and 22. This is this series of uh, different men who come up and, and basically tell Jesus that they want to be part of the group. They want to follow him. <clears throat> we read in Matthew eight twenty one. another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Let me do that before I follow you. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. Yeesh. About to put the guy's father in the ground, and Jesus says, You got no time for that. Come with me. And then Matthew 10, 34 through 37, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then the statement about taking up your cross and following him. It's not that Jesus sees family as being sinful or being an obstacle or being a hindrance. It's just that Jesus recognizes that like so many other things, even good things, even blessings that he gives us, the corruption of our hearts is such that we can turn a blessing into an idol. My family can become my greatest good. It can be the thing that I value and treasure more than anything else, which means that Christ takes second place or that I'm willing to compromise so long as I think it's going to serve to the benefit of my family. Jesus says, there is no way that you can follow me if you are not willing to make your family, bare minimum, second place. Which means, father, which means mother, you run the risk in following Christ of seeing your children turn out to be spiritual enemies. No parent wants to hear that. It's gut-wrenching. And yet, Jesus states it very clearly. If at the end of the day, any of these family members take precedent over me, you're not following me. And then Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, 25 and following, talks about the burdens that come. He talks primarily about married life, but we could join with that the idea of everything that comes with marriage, marriage and family, and basically says, listen, if you were called while you were unmarried, stay unmarried. If you were called while you were married, stay married. 
Because there's a lot of trouble and a lot of burdens that come when you bind yourself to another human being and in some cases, you may actually be better off keeping yourself single, keeping yourself without family so that you can serve the Lord without compromise than, for, um, than if you had done the reverse and actually found a wife and had a family. So for all the good, it has to be kept within the right perspective. It has to be seen as a good that still falls second to the greater good of knowing Christ and following him. Okay, some summary thoughts. I'm gonna try to tie in some of these observations into something that's mildly coherent. Yes, quick question. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, and, uh, and following. I don't know how FF came to mean and following. But if you had, like it, um, yeah, let me find it. What, uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 7, 25, FF means like in the following verses. So like the rest of the paragraph? It's pretty ambiguous, yeah. Yeah, if you're type A personality, you, that grates on you, right? No, you, you've got to give me a starting verse and an ending verse. Don't just give me start here and then stop whenever, you know, whenever you feel like it or when you think you've run to the end. Right, right. Well, that doesn't do me any good, right? I just read all the Corinthians because I didn't know when I was supposed to stop. <laughs> all right, summary thoughts. I, I like this quote from, uh, I referenced, I think in our very first session, Christopher Ashe's book on marriage which is not necessarily a, a, a read that you would hand out to just anyone. Um, but he says this in a pretty pointed, but I think accurate way, quote, it is God's general will and purpose that when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they should have children. It is God's general will and purpose that when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they should have children. Wording is important because when you say it is his general will and purpose, that's acknowledging the fact that not every couple, not every godly couple will end up having children. The point that Ash is trying to make in his book in that particular chapter is that all things being equal, the normal pattern that you see in Scripture is one where a Christian man and a Christian woman who come together in marriage, the more they come to understand what marriage is about and how guys, they should naturally assume or even want to have children. One of the ways I think that this is borne out is by the, uh, the verse in Psalm 128 where it, it likens um, enjoying the fruit of your work or the fruit of your hands to having a fruitful wife and all your children sitting around the table like olive plants, all right? To say that you're enjoying the fruit of your labor and then to, as one of the prime, if not the main examples that you give, to use that in conjunction with a fruitful family life, 
is a way of indicating that just like you go to work and expect to get certain things done and to see certain results, well, a husband and wife, when they get together and get to work, should expect to see certain results and certain effects, children. And that absent any children coming into that relationship, that's seen not as an elective choice, but something that is unnatural. It's one of the dangers, by the way, of of where our society is right now with people getting married later. I'm not saying that that's sinful in and of itself. Getting married later, having children later, or maybe not even at all. All right? A lot of times when you bear down or when you drill down to try to hear why it is that people are hesitant about having kids, I mean, there can be legitimate fears or insecurities. There's no doubt about that. But there's there's a lot of just self-centeredness and selfishness out there, right? Oh, I recognize, you know, if we have kids, we're not going to be able to do this, that, and the other. It's going to put constraints on us. We just want to enjoy life right now. We want to enjoy each other. All fine and good, but if that's the extent of your view of of marriage, I think it's probably um, a truncated view or a diminished view of marriage, far, far less than the robust view and healthy view that you see in Scripture. However, even though it's God's general will and purpose that a man and a woman in marriage would have children, however, because Christ is more important than family, there may be rare instances, I'll say, in which Christians choose not to have children. Understand, this is, we're not talking here about things like infertility or physical conditions that make uh, conception or childbearing impossible. We're talking about choosing not to have children. I couldn't even venture a guess on what the, what the odds would be, right? But the, it, would, it would have to be pretty, a pretty significant reason for a couple to choose not to have children. And I take that in part by implication from 1 Corinthians 7, that Paul indicates that there is a freedom, in some cases even an advantage to a man or a woman remaining single. And if that's the case, then I think there's good reason to think that there may be instances in which, because of a a calling or burden or, or some other such thing, in which maybe, maybe, a couple, a Christian couple can intentionally choose not to have children. Just in my limited experience, I've never heard anyone give a reason that, that I, th- <laughs> I thought fit in this category. Most of the time when you hear people talk about it, it's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? You're not ready to have kids. You're never gonna be ready to have kids. Just have kids, right? All right, anyway, off the soapbox. Number three. Uh, can you hit the, uh, wait a minute, here we go. Okay, there we go. Number three, children are the fruit of a working marriage. We've already alluded to this. This is the Psalm 128. That a fruitful marriage by implication in Psalm 128 is a marriage that sees children enter into the, enter into the home. 
By the way, one of the, the other, other side to that is not only is it a byproduct of a good working marriage, that is part of the work of marriage, creating and raising and nurturing children. It's one of the reasons that God brings you together so that you can have children. That tends to be almost more of a, uh, a Catholic perspective, right? And I think a lot of times Protestants kind of shy away from the notion that, you know, marriage is for procreation. But I, I don't know. Seems in Scripture, Scripture doesn't really separate the two that much. Not saying that you have to go out and have 10 kids or even six, but kids, right? Number four, family is the place where image bearers are nurtured and faith is cultivated. This is one of the reasons why I think on average and the normal view of the family in a Christian perspective should assume the presence of children as the byproduct or as the fruit of a marriage or uh, a marital union because this is one of the ways that we continue to exercise the creation mandate. It's very interesting that for all the, um, you know, this kind of um, renaissance, so to speak, in um, putting the focus back on creation design and enjoying the arts and literature and, you know, trying to remind Christians that, hey, all of these things are part of the way that God's designed us and created us. He, meant, he means for us to flourish in these things, and Christians should be able to enjoy that too. That very often... It's much, it, it becomes shockingly easy to leave out part of the creation mandate, which is the being fruitful part. It's very easy to talk about having dominion, right? Go out there and you know, have your dreams and conquer and aspire and do this and bring order out of chaos and everything like that, but there's the fruitful before the dominion part. And part of the fruitfulness is that Every time we bring a new life into the world, that it's the means by which God brings about another image bearer into the world. And in a Christian relationship or a Christian marriage, ideally, it's the place where a new image bearer is going to be cultivated in the faith so that he or she can take on that faith himself and the kingdom of God is expanded or developed. Not a guarantee, not a given. Christian parents sometimes end up with heathen children, And heathen parents sometimes end up with Christian children. There's no guarantee. But on the whole, this is, you know, what we aspire to from a Christian perspective. And then number five, family, like marriage, has typological significance. In the same way that marriage points to the greater union between Christ and his bride, the church, Family, human families, are something of a type or a symbol of the real, better, or greater family, which is the household of God. We don't have time to go into it right now, but the uh, passages that you have listed there, the Ephesians 2 and 3 and 1 Timothy 3, all use that kind of language, household language, in regard to what the church is or in regard to what the people of God are. 
So I take it that one of the ways then that God has graciously given us, the, given us a way to conceive of and to, um, and to work out this new covenant entity known as the church is that he gives us families first. And then he says, something like what goes on here as a family in the home, that's meant to, that's, that's a shadow or a model for what it's supposed to be like on a larger scale, right? Inclusion, a safe place, unity in the midst of diversity, right? No two kids are the same. Equal love, not showing, not playing favoritism, all of those things. Practicing that in the home hopefully preps us in some way to be able to do that as a church body or as a church family as well. Okay, okay, thus ends the very hectic and uh, quick overview of a Christian perspective on family. Next week, Christian perspective on singleness. You have to come even if you're not single. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the, the poor awkward single who comes in next week and sits down and it's just me and, me and him or me and her or something like that crickets in the background. Now, so just so if, if at least so that if we have any, you know, bold singles wander in, they don't feel incredibly awkward or anything like that, you have to show up. Do it as, do it as an act of Christian love. What's that? That could be, yeah. So like bring in the teens, they need to God, oh, 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 yes, 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 yes. Yeah, right, okay, yes. Well, there you go. Now I know what I need to do next week. Thank you. I was gonna flounder around. Okay, let me close this in prayer and we're done. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time that we've had. Help us, Father, not to think that uh, after uh, 45 minutes or so that we've come to, um, to plumb the depths of what your word has to teach us about uh, the institution of the family, um, its benefits, its blessings, also the dangers that come with it because of our fickle hearts. Um, would you continue to help us to see um, our marriages, our families, um, our extended families um, through the lens of Scripture and that we would place all of these relationships uh, under the Lordship of Christ. Uh, we trust that as we love Christ more and as we follow him more completely, that we will become better husbands and better wives, better fathers, better mothers. Um, so uh, may we honor and cherish the things that you've given us and yet keep them in the rightful place so that they don't usurp your place in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, be with us now as we head out of here and as we uh, start off on uh, another work week. Uh, may we be productive for your glory and for our joy. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.